usually before I leave home for a long trip like this one that we're on, we'll be away from home about a month, I go to visit one of my elder friends uh, that live in the community that I live in, we live in, and she is in her 90s now, she's 96. And I go to visit her because I never know, you know, I might be away and, and uh, during that time she could be gone, she could pass away. So I always go to pay my respects to her. She uh, is a person that when I came to Maui uh, about 37 years ago, she helped me get settled. She was very, very generous, very gracious. And uh, I was a single parent at that time. And even when my children got older, she sent $100 every month for each child that went to school until they graduated from college. And she was always so extremely gracious and uh, helpful and supportive. I saw the qualities through the years that I've known her, all these 37 plus years that I've known her. She was a leader in the community, uh, and yet, you know, there's lots of political problems, and uh, she was a member of the artistic community, and she always strived to be in harmony with everyone, even though things went awry sometimes. She resolved to be the best she could be on her path, on her Christian path. And she was truly and is still a great inspiration to me. When I met her, she was in her 60s. And now I'm that age. And she's in her 90s and I'm in my 60s. Where did the time go? It went so fast. It seemed like just yesterday that I met her. And uh, actually, she was the one that invited me to go with uh, my three children to live on Maui. A beautiful woman when she was in her 60s and still is from a different glow. Now the glow of her skin, the elasticity of her skin isn't there anymore. She bruises easily. She's in a wheelchair now. Her legs don't get her around. But her inner glow is much more vibrant than that outer physical glow that I always admired about her. Her inner beauty is what shines so much. And now uh, my mother's been gone for about three or four years now. She passed away and she was the one I was always watching so closely just watching the inner glow of her beauty, of her heart, just get stronger and stronger as she got older. So it's what inspires me these days, that inner beauty. It's what I take a kind of, I look for in others, I look for in myself. Being around the elders of my life the men and the women, Manindra G, my first Dharma teacher, Seda Upandita, who is one of our teachers, who is 90 years old this year. All of them have been so careful with their speech and their behavior that this is what I'm always inspired and watching out for these days. 
I'd like to speak about this evening, and it's the the um, the subject of our retreat this week. By inner beauty, I mean the qualities of a discerning and compassionate heart and mind, so that we know really clearly what leads to true happiness and what leads to its opposite, what leads to suffering, so that we avoid what leads to suffering. We kind of uh, allow ourselves to notice it, of course, and do what we can to turn away from it and to turn towards what leads to peace, what leads to true happiness. Ancient Pali language, these virtues are called paramis. And Steve and I will try to review some of those paramis during this week with you. These are qualities that create harmony within a community, within a family, within a society. And they're also qualities which create and support and deepen harmony within our own hearts. So they're so important in our lives. They're roughly uh, translated as perfections of character, this parami, this word parami. So there are 10 of them, and i just like to name them all. Actually, you'll be repeating verses of each parami every evening. They are generosity, morality, or living harmoniously is the second one. Renunciation is the third. The fourth and fifth are balanced effort and wisdom. And then there is truthfulness and resolve, which is the sixth and seventh one. Goodwill or metta, loving kindness, is the eighth. Then equanimity and patience are the last two to make ten. These are qualities of human beings who have inner beauty and who make us happy when we're around them. No matter what condition the body is in or the world is in, when we're around people with inner beauty or we actually sense it in our own hearts, not in a puffed up way, but in a way where we feel a a deep sense of stability, This is very powerful for us, for our lives. Especially when we decide to develop them consciously in our lives. And this is all part of our dharma work, all part of our practice in the dharma, is to develop these with conscious effort. Not just when the opportunity arises, then we respond with whatever goodness we can respond with. Of course we would do that. But every day to see whether there's one of these paramis which we want to work on, for example, or several of them, we might reflect in our lives which ones are we most strong in and bring more strength to those. Which ones are we needing to get stronger, which we might be a little bit weak in, and actively practice those in our lives. Usually we look for deep happiness in persons, in things, 
in situations outside of ourselves, in conditions outside of our control, really. But when we just look practically at the paramis, we see that these are very much in our control. These are very much uh, in our ability and our capacity to practice them, to strengthen them, to deepen them as habit patterns in our lives. They're an unending source of a lot of happiness for us. I know when just very spontaneously an act of patience comes or an act of resolve comes, resolution to do something that day, to complete something that day or that week, or the next time one of my children call to kind of maybe have another behavior response than the one that causes them a few tears or, Mom, I'll talk to you later, you know, (laughs) when you're in a better mood. Um, So when I can see that I've got some determination, some resolve, and I actually do it the next time or I complete it that week, I feel really happy inside. I feel a sense of strength that can't come from anywhere else, that doesn't come from anybody giving me a compliment or telling me uh, anything about how good my children are or how beautiful my garden is. It's something that is from an inside job, and that makes me really, really happy. That happiness gives me a lot of strength to keep going in my life. There's also an inner feeling of stability and safety for those people around me. I feel that I can really rely on myself when those habit patterns come up spontaneously. The patterns of truthfulness, of effort, of living in harmony with others, of spontaneous goodwill that comes up. I feel like, oh, I can rely on that. It's a habit pattern. It's a better habit pattern now than it was 10 years ago, for example. So these paramis or qualities are generic to any culture that values harmony in their society. It's generic to uh, many religions. We don't have to be religious or belong to a religion to believe in these, to believe in the goodness and the efficacy of these. They're really common sense. And as one of our Dharma students and friends said, this is, uh, the Dharma is not just common sense, it's advanced common sense. It's really looking at all the qualities and principles of the Buddha's teaching and trying to enact them in our own lives and seeing how they benefited others in their lives. So we are encouraged to activate those qualities in our lives because what happens is we see that it deactivates those places where we cause harm to ourselves and to others. Automatically, when we bring metta or goodwill into the moment or into a situation or into our life, it deactivates its opposite, which is hatred or ill will. Automatically, when we activate 
patience, it deactivates impatience. So, as um, I say, we can feed two birds with one seed in that way. The word parami, usually translated as perfection, has deeper meaning than that. So I want to take one of the root words uh, from which the word parami comes. And that word is param, param, P-A-R-A-M. That word means carrying one across to the other shore. Carrying one across to the other shore. And I think of this river of life that we live in, the river with its currents and its um, kind of the waves that kind of bring us to places where we didn't think we wanted to go. The 10,000 joys and sorrows that pass through our lives or that we have to navigate over as we cross this river. And param, this word parami, the root word, taking us to the other shore, param, means taking us to the shore of very deep peace, an unconditional kind of peace that comes from deep inside our hearts, where we're less dependent on things outside of us needing to be in a certain way so that we will feel peaceful that it depends a lot in what's going on inside rather than what's going on outside of us. A second word that parami comes from is another root word called parama, parama, like paramount, paramount, of foremost importance. Of foremost importance in how we formulate one's life and how we put one's life together. These are the paramis. How are we putting our life together? Are we really taking these seriously? Taking a look at these every day if we can. We'll give you a beautiful sheet of paramis uh, and their descriptions that we will chant in a way every evening. And uh, people like to put them on their refrigerator or somewhere where they can see every day. And in fact, we have a beautiful uh, poster made of them that I wish we had here now. One of our members here uh, made for us. Uh, and this is a way we can remember how beautiful these qualities are and try to remember them and bring them out into our lives every day. They are of foremost importance in formulating one's life. Because this inner beauty does not depend on our physical appearance. It doesn't depend on our wealth or our education. Our social or our career status makes no difference to this inner beauty. Book knowledge, worldly, worldly accomplishments, our possessions, or someone or any other power outside of us endowing this upon us. It really depends on our own efforts to cultivate them, to bring out what is already strong within us, to strengthen it more, and to activate those ones which we're not so strong with. So it comes from our, our wholesome desire 
to attend to them. There are desires that are unwholesome and they are, there are desires that are wholesome. And this is a wholesome desire to really attend to cultivating this, to bring our intention to it every day, our resolve, our conscious energy. So tonight, I'd like to put special attention on the second parami, or the second virtuous quality. It's called sila, and sometimes it's translated to morality, which doesn't have always a good connotation in our society. So I'd like to fill it out more. It really means living harmoniously uh, among those that we live with, among those that we revere. Living harmoniously, especially in connection with our speech and our actions, our speech and our behavior. So these are outlined in the five precepts which we take in the morning and which I described to you last night, the five precepts of non-harming. One of the characteristics of sila, I'll use that word because it means so much more than morality, means harmonizing. And there are two areas of life which, or two levels of life which we uh, understand practically we are harmonizing when we practice sila. First, we are harmonizing that living with others in our lives. We're trying our best to live in harmony with others. What we do when we live in harmony with others is we consider the highest values of our community. And not just go for the low bar, but really know what the highest values of our community are and see if we can live and reach and really fill out those values in our own life. And the second level which we become aware of is living in harmony with the highest values of our own hearts, of our own minds, understanding them and living in harmony with them. So these two levels are very, very important and they lead to a sense of deep well-being which is the core of our practice this week. Inner beauty and well-being, really understanding where does well-being come from? It doesn't come from outside of ourselves. It really comes from a deep sense of harmony within ourselves and knowing that we're living in harmony with those around us. I think in the Dharma, there's, there can be so much said on the wisdom side of Dharma, you know, the Four Noble Truths and karma, of course, and the, you know, dependent origination and the seven factors of enlightenment, and it can go on and on like that. But just paying attention to these basics doesn't get enough airtime. And this is why I wanted to bring back uh, the light of attention around these very simple and basic matters in the Dharma. This inner harmony needs to, leads to a sense of well-being. Why? Because it composes the mind and heart. It makes the heart really, really peaceful. 
we have a deep sense of composure. And we sense that about people who have inner beauty. There's a deep sense of graciousness about them, of composure. There's a sense about people who have this kind of inner beauty that there's not a lot of remorse or regret running around in their minds and hearts. It's a settledness. It has far-reaching consequences, this composure. Because when there's composure in our minds and our hearts, that kind of settledness, it feels like a, a very still pool, a pool of clarity, a pool that when you look inside the pool, you can really see a clear reflect, a reflection of your own mind, a clear reflection of your own heart. So it shows in this deep pool your own reflection, but also at the same time, you see deeply into that pool because there's no debris running around of resentment. Remorse is good, but uh, if we've got even remorse in our own minds, there's not that kind of composure, not that kind of inner stillness. When we have that inner stillness like a deep forest pool and look into it, we see all the layers there, the layers that need paying attention to. We see it without identification, without uh, kind of selfing around it. Sees deeply into a quiet and a still mind. Sees things as they really are, the truth of life. Usually when the Buddha was invited to a community to give teachings, he would begin actually with the teaching of generosity, of dana. This would be first, and we'll be giving that, filling out that talk also. And then came sila, or living in harmony. And uh, even to a group of very uh, highly developed monks and nuns and lay people, still uh, the teaching of sila, this teaching of dana would be given. Because if we forget about the basis, if we forget about the soil that we're growing the wisdom in, then it's very, it's very weak, it's very shallow. The wisdom can be very shallow and heady, not really from our hearts. So this is why I think it's important to look at it again and again, this sila, this quality, this parami. There are times for all of us, and uh, I know for myself, every year I look at these qualities at some point in the year, not always at the beginning, but usually when I'm in a retreat like this, I, I, I'm able to see those qualities which need a little repairing or a little more refinement or a little more attention. And it's seen so clearly that I decide I'm going to pay attention to this more in my life. Basically, I look and see, I need to clean up my act a little more in certain areas. And I really do my best to do that. And it might be little baby steps along the way or refinements that nobody else can notice but myself, especially you know, when I have to 
remind others, I'm doing the best I can in patience or in resolve to finish my workload or uh, whatever I'm se- I set out to do. So if we make a reflection even about the five precepts, not even going through all the paramis, but looking at the uh, five precepts and see where can we refine, just refining even a little bit in any one of those areas of the five precepts really helps us make some big strides in our life. I remember once when uh, I decided to really pay attention to the first one, paying attention to not killing or non-harming any living being. And there have been several moments or junctures in my Dharma life when I've paid attention more to this one. But when I paid attention, when I was just about to hit a bug, you know, to kind of get it out of the way, it was a cockroach. And I decided I was just about to, you know, slam it with something, a piece of paper or a newspaper. This was long ago. It it came to my heart that this being also wants to be happy. And it was because of really paying attention to the precepts. This being really wants to find the next, you know, piece of food to eat, wants survival, wants to live, doesn't want to die. And my harming this being really It really stopped me in my tracks and it made me feel compassion, which I really hadn't before for a cockroach. And cockroaches in Hawaii are big. They're really, really big. I mean, I don't want to describe them. (laughs) So it really helped me to stop, to pay attention. And not only was there non-harming being more developed, but there was also a compassion being developed for this being too wants to live. I remember Manindraji telling me once when we lived in a place where there were lots of cockroaches and he came to visit, he said, these beings probably were here before this house was here because cockroaches can live a very long time. And he said, these beings own the land as much as you do. So now we do the thing where we catch and release all the time, and I swear the same cockroach comes back into the house, and I find that cockroach in my bathroom all the time. I was meaning to see if I could put a little polish on it one time. (laughs) But we do it all the time, you know, we catch and release, and we refrain from killing. And my heart feels so good about that. It's a refinement that makes inside me feel more harmonious with myself and with others. I mean, it's not a big deal. You know, they come they come around and you can catch them. I catch them in a towel and I wrap them up and then I throw the whole towel outside. 
careful attention through non-harming, through the first precept is not killing, not taking any life. It, uh, what it does is it helps to develop compassion. It also helps to develop the protection of life. It also helps to um, disarm hatred and ill will. Very important. So the second one is refraining from taking what has not been offered. How can we refine that in our lives? There, there might be ways that you can think of where you are being careful uh, about that. The other day, someone offered me something they picked up from the street while I was taking a walk. It was an avocado. And so I, I really took a moment to think, did this come from the street or did it come from somebody's yard? So I asked my friend, where did you pick this up? I didn't see you where you picked it up from. And she said, I picked it up from the street. I said, okay, then I'll take it. Because I really didn't want to take something that belonged to someone else. So it's just that kind of refinement about uh, that helps me feel a greater sense of inner support, that I can rely on that in my life. So otherwise, what does it do? It habituates attachment. It habituates the wanting mind. In this way, what it does is it it helps to weaken it, weaken attachment, which is a major cause of suffering. The third one is speaking truthfully, uh, refraining from uh, telling a lie. And so when we do that, we encourage, we engender the truth. As my teacher said to a a lot of us one time, how can you realize the truth if you can't speak the truth, if you can't stand on the truth in your own heart? So refraining from sexual behavior and misconduct that hurts others directly or indirectly, that's very clear and straightforward. Refraining from the use of drugs that make the mind unclear because this increases delusion which also increases greed and hatred when there's delusion in the mind. So all of these precepts counteract and weaken the hindrances, the defilements that cause us and others a lot of suffering. Paying close attention to them will really help to develop that inner beauty, give us a great sense of stability in our lives. So remembering that these precepts are not about following them blindly. They're about practice. I undertake the practice to refrain from this, refrain from that. And if we break the precept, then we try again. We, we refine it in ways that we know that are easy for us. So develop this, developing this careful attention is a skill set. So we understand what it is to live live in interdependence with others, how that causes us a great deal of of feeling that sense of inner beauty, of feeling that well-being. It's said that the proximate causes for careful attention to arise are known as the two guardians of the world, the two guardians of the world. 
And when I first heard this, of course, I was so excited because I thought I could go back to my Catholic days when I could just pray to them to guard me, you know, and to help me. But these guardians are inner guardians. They come from inside of us. They're developed as we do our practice. This is, these are the shining lights that are the cause and condition for inner beauty to arise. So in the ancient language that the Buddha's teachings were recorded in, the language of Pali, they were called Hiri and Otapa. Um, no need to remember these words uh, unless you want to know pa the Pali words. Hiri, H-I-R-I, and Otapa, O-T-T-A-P-P-A. Many fine translators like to continue to use these words rather than other words because their translations aren't very complete when it's translated into English. And you'll understand why. Hiri is translated as moral shame. So what can that mean in our society? Maybe not something that's very um, inspiring, moral shame. But in the Dhamma, the definition or the meaning of it is not in association with self-aversion, which moral shame, a feeling of moral shame could be, some kind of self-aversion. Hiri is an inner sense that our words or our behavior don't feel right. It's just that inner intuitive sense that we're not in harmony with ourselves, with our deepest values. We're not in harmony with the deepest or the highest values of our community. Actually, this is a healthy form of sensitivity. It's not, this moral shame is not unhealthy. It's very, very healthy. It's an intuitive sense of this is hurtful to myself. When we do this or say this, it's disrespecting my inner values. So it's hurtful to ourselves. We shrink away from it. We don't want to go there. It's having respect for oneself. That's what it boils down to, this hearing. It's respect for one's own dignity, one's own integrity. It wants to preserve it. It wants to uphold it. It wants to support it. <coughs> Sometimes I get a feeling when this hiri comes up that this is a not, not a good thing for me to be doing. It's like when I think about a subject matter that over and over kind of is judging someone else or myself or blaming someone else or myself. I say to myself almost with these words, this is not a good thing for me to be doing, to go over and over this. This is when Hiri comes up, and when it's just stop. And it's very, it's a healthy form of sensitivity to myself. It's not blaming or getting down on myself. It's just seeing wisely what needs to be done. Uh, recently, I was at a retreat in Nepal. I was a yogi then. And our teacher, our, our main teacher, gave an example of what it, we sense when Hiri comes around. It's like you, you smell something, or you, you sense that you're just about to step into something that is dangerous, 
or that isn't good. And the, the example that's given in the ancient texts, in the Pali texts, is that one is about to step in a pile of dung. And you see that, you smell it from afar, or you see it, you come getting closer to it, and you shy away from it. And hopefully we shy away much sooner than later, because a lot of times we can step in it, and then of course we kind of have to wipe up the mess. But if we can notice it much sooner than later, then it's a lot easier for us. So we shy away, we shrink away from it. One time when I was in practice, this was not uh, this last year, but another year when I was practicing in Burma, I went to practice out after a very difficult uh, period of time in dealing with a, um, an acquaintance, a friend, a, a, actually a colleague of mine. And it was a very difficult relationship over a few years. And out of unchecked habit, of course, when I went into practice, I noticed that the mind kept thinking over and over again about the situation, about the, all the uh, details that came within our relationship, all the ways of like, I wanted to say this, but I didn't say that, how I felt unjustly judged or blamed, and then I, of course, I went on to blame the other person for blaming me. I mean, just that kind of cycle of suffering. And I reported this to the teacher, to Seda Upandita. <coughs> and I would say, it comes up over and over again, and I'm seeing how much of it was in the background of the mind that I didn't see before. But now, in the quietness of practice, I can see the things that were playing out over and over again. And of course, I would stop it because I'd go to something else in daily life. But when there was nothing to stop it, not another thing that I need to take care of, but I could just see it kind of having great force in the mind, it was very, very scary. And so I told him that a twinge of fear would come whenever I would see it coming. It came to the point where I could see or feel the energy of this coming close. It was like that pile of dung that I could sense that uh, coming closer to the mind, ready to you know, play itself out. And I, could, I would say, I feel this twinge of fear. And it's not like aversion, like I don't like that. I'm, I'm kind of getting down on myself for doing this. It was more like a fear of don't go near this. And he said, that's right. And I said, I asked him, is this the quality of hearing? Is that inner, that inner protection? I later asked him, and he said, yes, that's what it is. That's hearing. That's that protection, that twinge of fear of this is not good. It's not a good thing for you to be doing this. And so you withdraw your energy from this pattern. I remember what he told me during the time. I said, it's so strong. It's so strong. It's really suffering. It's really dukkha. And he said, the, and I told him, the, I feel it most when I'm walking. And he said, the moment you experience this, or <clears throat> know that it's approaching, withdraw your energy quickly from this. It's like 
as soon as I would see it coming, I would just go back and let there be a space between the uh, thinking, thinking, thinking and the knowing of it. Let there be a space between there. If it's really strong, let that energy just go into the ground when you take a step. Just let it go into the ground. This was very, very helpful for me. The withdrawing my energy, the energy was that, uh, that fear, that wholesome fear that this will get my own mind stream in trouble because of the habit pattern, because of the, the greed and hatred, the sense of self that's always being developed when this goes into the mind over and over and over again. So this hearing, a sense of respect for oneself, seeing the danger to oneself, this is one of the guardians of the world, the inner guardians, seeing the danger to oneself. The other guardian is otapa, and the direct English translation is moral dread, moral dread. It's not a defilement, this kind of dread. It's really another healthy form of fear. Because what happens is we may dread the consequences of our actions. We may dread the consequences of our speech. It's a wise sense of knowing and respecting others, really. Not just ourselves. They come together, respecting ourselves through hiri, respecting others through because we respect their sense of well-being. We don't want to uh, lay anything into them or make a dig or um, blame or judge. We may see it in the mind, but we don't have to put it out in our speech and behavior. This is what the precepts and actually all the paramis, most of the paramis are about. So it's a wise sense of respecting the communal standards for harmony, knowing what should not be done or what should be done, and refraining from what will cause harm. It's consideration for others, because we know that a community is as fragile as one person's unconscious or unmindful speech behavior. We've all seen that own families, in our communities. When I was um, reviewing this talk um, a while ago, I was remembering that when I uh, was in high school, a senior in high school, we did Christmas tree sales. And this is when I was living in California in the Bay Area. We did these sales to raise funds for our um, senior uh, group. And so there was one person I knew very, very well, and um, he had uh, some standing in, in the high school and the community. He was quite um, famous for his uh, sports abilities. And he was, he was actually quite a rascal, too. And so <laughs> while uh, we were uh, putting everything away at the end of the evening, he looked at me and he said, 
I'm taking this cash box and you're not letting anybody know about it. And uh, I said, I don't know how I'm going to do that. You know, if the cash box is gone, it's either me or you, you know, unless somebody lies about it. And we had this conversation back and forth, and I said, you can't do that. You, you just can't take it. And, you know, I, I grew up in, in the 60s, and those were really rascal days. And he took out his gun, and he put it on the cash box, and he said, I'm taking this box. And I said, you are not taking that box. You're putting that box back, and we're locking this up. And uh, I said, just think of what everybody's going to think of you. They're not going to think it's me. They're going to know it's you. And uh, you're not going to have very much respect in this community. And you're not going to have a good feeling about yourself. You put that back. You put his gun away. It really just takes reminding people sometimes, just like reminding our own children, reminding people around us, you know. Can you respect yourself if you're doing this? Can you respect your community around you? We do this because not just out of respect, but because we might fear we would be punished. This is a good fear to have or that we might, there might be legal legalities against us. So we have to pay attention to this area too. It's a healthy form of fear. Uh, Seda Upandita in this talk that he gave in Nepal said that it's like seeing or feeling a burning hot, hot flame. It's like your hand is almost in it or in it already and you pull away and you say, this is not good, because you feel that this is going to burn you, this is going to hurt you, and uh, you could uh, be burned or hurt by the consequences of this also. So moral dread, dreading the consequences of being shunned uh, or legal or societal implications, Manindra would always say that there's an inner signal that there's wise discernment. It's like feeling the heat inwardly. There's an inner signal. One time when he was staying with us at our house, I was trying to cook for him, you know, and put all these Indian spices, the spices that he liked in his food. And I wasn't really much of a Indian, a cook of Indian foods. So he would stand around with the spices and I wouldn't do the right thing much of the time. So I'd see the look on his face. He has a particular look on his face when he's annoyed. He doesn't act it out with his, you know, or say anything. But I can tell he kind of his, his lips go down and his outer lip goes out a little bit. And uh, so I asked him when I was cooking this one time, I remember right around the stove, I said, Manindraji, are you annoyed? And are you disturbed or annoyed? Or is there a version there? Something like that. And his answer was like this, which had a deeper meaning. And I'm not going to that deeper meaning now. But he said, oh, yes, a version is there, but I am not a version. He could, he could just see it coming and going in his mind. 
he wasn't really identified with it, actually. That's what he meant. But he said, you know, when that comes up, there's a signal. And he used that word, there's a signal. Now, I know that something is disturbing the mind. And so I'm very careful then, so it doesn't come out of the mouth. It doesn't come into my behavior. And he actually admitted it. So we want to be careful. You know, there are times when we want to have the last word in the argument, but we know it's just going to cause a little more uh, discordance, and, or we want to make that dig, and um, you know, it sounds not so, it sounds harmless, but really the other side of it is. So we want to be careful about those things. I um, came across this wonderful quote by Goethe says, I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It's my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make a life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. So I try to remember this. And Hiri Otapa can come to the rescue, can come to our protection when we need it. It can guard us from further trouble, even if we've already gotten ourselves in trouble through our words or our behavior. So you can reflect in your own lives. You know, where is it in your own lives where you might have acted out or there's a habit pattern of, of saying or doing things that just cause more harm around and within us. And really pay a little more attention to that. What are the karmic seeds that we're dropping into our own mind stream that the seeds of aversion, of ill will, of attachment to how we want it to be, and that keep coming up over and over again because of not paying careful attention. A friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, told me she had an interaction um, and has had a lot of interactions with someone in her family where she feels usually quite hurt and betrayed. And this is common among all of us in our families. She wanted to strike out in this particular interaction. She wanted to actually lash out to blame and with hurtful words that would just add to the fire, add to the flame. But there was one particular time when she felt like she could just wait. She could just stop. She didn't have to say anything at all. And she felt that really these protective guardians were very strong within her. She could really rely on that inner wisdom and that compassion for herself and for this person in her family. So she felt that this Hiri was protecting her, that she wasn't, she knew for sure that she didn't want to drop any more unwholesome seeds of greed or hatred or unclarity into her own mind that habitual tendency to do the same thing over and over again, to lash out, 
So she felt that that was very strong, that protective guardian of Hiri. And also Otapa, that guardian that didn't let uh, her, that allowed her to see clearly that she would hurt another, that she would hurt her sister again. And then her sister would hurt her. And then it would be the same cycle of suffering over and over again. She tried to touch into a place where she could, she could see respect for her sister and respect and love for her sister and herself as a family. So what happened was it freed her from the regret she might have had, from remorse, which is healthy, but still remorse keeps us kind of sometimes thinking and thinking about the past. So as the Buddha says, this magnificent chariot of the Noble Eightfold Path, which we're all trying to practice to the best of our ability, this Noble Eightfold Path, this chariot, has Hiri and Otapa as its backrest. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely upon, something to depend upon, something upon which you can sit comfortably as you travel towards your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, you will risk losing mindfulness and you will face all the dangers that will ensue. So making the commitment to developing these, uh, these paramis in our lives paying closer attention to the five precepts, for example. This will bring us a great sense of uh, inner beauty. We can rely on ourselves, and we can create much more harmony around us, within us. So I'd just like to end with the benefits of virtue. And this is in the Pali Canon in the teachings of the Buddha. It said that one who is virtuous comes into a large fortune, and that large fortune is liberation. One's fair name is spread. It said that the scent of virtue leads the way, it goes before you. One enters an assembly without fear. One dies unconfused. And at the breakup of one's body, one's mind and heart will reappear in a happy destiny. So let's sit for a moment and let the words dissolve. 